0: Guten Tag! Und willkommen to the Europeans. I am Dominic Kramer speaking to you from Berlin. And on the other end of this magical, invisible, not very well functioning internet connection is Katie Lee, who's in Rome this week. How are you, Katie?
1: Well, I was really happy to be here and thinking, oh, I'm in Rome. It's so glamorous and romantic. Except it really isn't very glamorous. Firstly, I'm not supposed to be here. Uh, My boyfriend's here in Rome for a conference. So I'm kind of squatting illegally in the room that he's staying in. And uh, secondly, it's not romantic or glamorous because the Wi-Fi in this flat is it's kind of the worst Wi-Fi that I've ever had in the world. So I'm hunched over in a ball in the hallway, hugging the Wi-Fi box, and it is miserable indeed. Yay! Well, I can just
0: about hear you, and you only sound a little bit like Darth Vader, so...
1: Great! We're off to a great start. Um, what's been happening in Berlin?
0: Oh, you know, just more rehearsals. I actually went to Dorset in England last weekend, which was really nice to sing at a site-specific arts festival on the coast in Boscombe. Have you heard of Boscombe?
1: I haven't. And I also haven't heard of site-specific festivals. What does it mean? Oh,
0: well, you're very uncultured then. I'm a yob. (laughs) It means uh, art that like is performed in spaces that aren't conventional theatrical spaces. So we did a really nice performance with this Dutch art collective that I sometimes work with called Collective Walden. We did a performance in a little park by the sea about oil and it's like a meditation on oil and the melting ice caps with a performance lecture and a beautiful art installation. And we had interviews in front of it with a local oil activist, with a local dairy farmer and a climatologist and it went really well. It was fun.
1: Cool. Do you know loads of stuff now about um, global warming?
0: Yeah, I know loads of stuff about why it's really bad. Yeah, that's sad, isn't it? Um, But how have you been? Have you been, uh, are you still like all riled up after seeing Donald Tusk's Instagram account and seeing him (laughs) eating ice cream with a plastic spoon?
1: Uh, I've been getting into a little confrontation this week, listeners, with uh, none other than EU President Donald Tusk. By the way, if you are not following his Instagram, you are missing out seriously because it is an amazing place. I've actually already talked about this before in this podcast, but um, his most recent posts is a picture of him eating an ice cream. And there's no other way to describe the look on his face than murderous. He is looking murderously into the camera while eating an ice cream cone. And the other insane thing about it is the fact that he's eating it with a little tiny plastic spoon, even though it's a cone ice cream, which obviously like comes in its own container. And you can just lick it. So I may have taken the liberty of uh, commenting on this post from the Europeans' account saying, like, Donald, what are you doing? Why are you wasting a plastic spoon on something that comes in a container? Don't you think that was the right call?
0: I think that was a really good bit of holding power to account, Katie, and I'm really proud of you.
1: Thank you. We got 24 likes.
0: He also did an amazing uh, bit of storifying this week, offering cakes to Theresa May and then did the photo again and wrote no cherries on this one I'm afraid Teresa
1: classic I love him on Instagram he's a lot more serious and boring on Twitter I think he tailors it to the audience
0: I mean let's be honest it is almost certainly not him on Instagram. He's paying someone a lot of money out of European taxpayers pockets.
1: Do you reckon? Oh, sorry, just to go back to the spoon thing. uh, We did have an Austrian listener mention that apparently it's really common practice in Austria where he was at the time to get a little spoon, a little plastic spoon with your ice cream so that you don't cause mess. But Austria, I mean, that's a massive waste of plastic. Get with it.
0: It's very wasteful. Anyway. Um, So, coming up on the show this week, we are going to be talking about the ever-expanding academic plagiarism crisis that has been plaguing the political establishment in Spain since the spring and seems to have caught the Prime Minister, Pedro Sanchez, in its grip. We are going to be calling Michael Stoddart, the Madrid correspondent of the Financial Times later, to find out more.
1: We also have the first in a series of chats that are coming up over the next few weeks with some of the people behind Are We Europe? which is a very beautiful magazine that we're partnering up with for a couple of weeks Kirill Hartog is the founder and editor and he'll be here for a very quick chat about why their latest issue focuses on Europe's relationship with America.
0: But first...
1: Who's it been a bad week for, Dominic?
0: It's been a bad week for Denmark's largest bank, Danske Bank, and perhaps a bad week for all of us considering the shocking claims this week that 200 billion euros were laundered through one of their branches in Tallinn, Estonia. Yes, 200 billion euros. That's approximately half the size of the Danish economy.
1: Bloody hell. Full
0: disclosure, I am pretty reluctant to engage with stories like this as they just seem to like add to my cynical sense about people who wield financial power but hey that's why we have the happy ending at the end of the show to cheer people like me up and the european commission has described this as the biggest scandal facing europe at the moment so i guess we should talk about it a bit but not too much i promise last wednesday the ceo of danska bank resigned following an investigation which revealed these 200 billion euros of illegal payments that were made through the estonian bank What exactly constitutes an illegal payment? And yeah, what is money laundering? Actually, if I'm honest, it's a bit of a vague concept for a non-money person like me. Well, according to the European Commission's website, their definition of money laundering is as follows. Money laundering is the process by which criminal proceeds are cleaned so that their illegal origins are hidden. It is usually associated with the types of organised crime that generate huge profits in cash, such as trafficking in drugs, weapons and human beings, as well as fraud. It's not good, essentially. That was me, that final bit.
1: I'm curious to know what you thought it was before. Did you think it was like literally washing banknotes or something?
0: No, of course I didn't think it was washing banknotes. But there's something (laughs) about the phrase money laundering that just makes it sound like... A little bit like something out of a, a gangster film from the 80s. And I never really think about what it actually is. Fair enough. So there are suggestions that this is perhaps the biggest money laundering scandal in the history of Europe. The customers whose portfolios were with the Estonian branch of Danske were mainly from Russia, the Virgin Islands and... Britain, A proud day for us, Katie.
1: Yay!
0: The bank first had concerns flagged up in 2007 and missed another opportunity in 2013 when a whistleblower in Copenhagen raised concerns. But the inquiry didn't end up starting until 2017. So basically, it's a big fat mess. And I guess it's worth engaging with this story briefly just to remember that these things really happen and they make things easier for organized crime. So let's make sure this doesn't happen again, okay, bankers?
1: Okay. I speak on behalf of all the bankers now. Um, I was intrigued to see that the British Virgin Islands were involved in this story. Has there ever been a story involving the British Virgin Islands that doesn't have some massively dodgy element to it?
0: Well, no, but has there ever been a story about the British Virgin Islands that isn't to do with tax avoidance?
1: Probably not. But I'm thinking maybe we should cover the side of the British Virgin Islands, which are technically part of Europe, that aren't really dodgy, and that we should go and report there and that someone should pay us to go and do that.
0: Oh, we should. Wasn't there that horrible story from the British Virgin Islands when um, Kate Winslet was caught up in a huge, huge, huge fire at Richard Branson's big island house?
1: That wasn't quite the British Virgin Islands, was it? Hang on. Necker Island.
0: I just assumed it was because it's virgin.
1: (laughs) It is the British Virgin Islands. I was right. You were. That's good knowledge.
0: Um, But I do agree, Katie, we should definitely go and check it out. I think actually it should jump to the top of our list of places we need to go in Europe. Yeah. But maybe we won't need to go because maybe you're going to cheer us up with good week.
1: Maybe, although it's a bit of a creepy one this week. It has been a good week for Greek spiders. Mm. Um, Our eight-legged friends have been having a field day in Aitoliko, which is a town in Western Greece. You might have seen the pictures of this, but if not, we will uh, post them on our Facebook and Twitter so you can gulp at them. These spiders have made a giant 300-meter-long spider web long an entire beach the whole thing just appeared really quickly and like literally the whole beach is just wrapped in gray stuff like whole trees and everything and underneath all this webbing the spiders are laying eggs and making babies thousands of spider babies which at first I thought was really disgusting and horrible but now I think it's kind of beautiful. These are tetragnatho spiders, which are a little terrifying because they can walk on water like little spidery Jesuses and come towards you. Ugh. It's quite horrible. They move faster on water than they do on land, apparently. But they're not dangerous or poisonous or anything, so don't worry. It's not the first time that this has happened, and it has happened in other places, although it is fairly unusual. The last time that this region in Greece saw this strange phenomenon was back in 2003. Uh, But it has been seen in other places too. The little buggers did the same thing in Dallas, Texas a few years ago. And according to Maria Chatzaki, who is a Greek biologist who studies these spiders, she said it was really ideal conditions for them at the moment because there's been a combination of really warm weather and loads and loads of mosquitoes for them to eat. And there was a quite funny slash sad quote from her on the Greek website Newsit. She said, The spiders will have their party and will soon die. That's nice, isn't it? Oh. Sleep well, children it's exciting times here at europeans hq we are very pleased to announce that we are launching into a partnership for a few weeks with a very fine magazine called are we europe you might remember back in april we had its co-founder mick Terehorst, on the show talking about how he wanted to make europe sexy again i kind of think they're doing it they are putting out a quarterly magazine both on the internet and in beautiful print and it's really nice it's like very beautifully designed it's got gorgeous photography in it and most importantly of all it is full of interesting stories from all around Europe. Each issue has a different theme. This issue is about Europe's relationship with America. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be featuring a few kind of mini chats with some of the people uh, who've been involved in making it.
0: The first person we're going to be speaking to is Kirill Hartog, who is one of the other co-founders and the editor-in-chief of this magazine. So let's give him a call.
2: My name is uh, Kirill. I am half Dutch, half Russian. Uh, I grew up in Spain, in the Canary Islands in Tenerife, where there's actually a lot of British tourists. But I got involved with Are We Europe? Uh, I mean, in a way, as a child, I got interested in Europe and the different ways of organizing, you know, different national societies, just from being exposed to so many cultures and and languages. Um, And then after I went to study at university in Amsterdam and I met the other co-founders, so that's Mick, Mariah and Thies, and together we decided to, uh, to start doing a blog about Europe, which was at that point, it was still a very vague idea. And then later that took shape into uh, basically what we're doing now.
0: You've just released another magazine, which I think this time is in. it's available in print as well, which is very exciting.
2: Right, yeah.
0: Could you tell us a bit about the theme of this, this issue?
2: Yeah, sure. So the issue is called The Ocean Between Us and explores the relationship between the United States and Europe and uh basically we were interested in investigating whether the cultural ties between Europe and the United States are still existent, how strong they are uh considering everything that's happening right now uh under Trump for example with the transatlantic relationship. And so we chose to go for a for a cultural uh, angle and we focus on on music on uh the approach to freedom of speech on different sort of elements that tie the two continents together. We also have one article about Trump because, hey, uh, you can't really get around the guy. (laughs) But yeah, so it's about Europe and the United States and whether we're still close, whether we were close, uh, whether that is changing and where the transatlantic relationship is going in the future.
1: And what's your favorite piece in this issue of the magazine?
2: Oh, I'm not allowed to say because that would make
0: me uh, a bad editor.
2: Oh,
1: come on.
0: <laughs> but what would be a good one for people to start with?
2: To be honest, I think the the article we have on, it's called The Netflix Effect. And for me, that was quite surprising because I had no idea that this was going on. But basically, it's about an EU law that got passed recently, uh, which is forcing at least 30% of all Netflix TV shows to be uh, produced in Europe. And what that might do is it might expose American and international audiences to more and more European TV shows. And it's interesting to think about what that will do to people's perception of Europe and to their consumption of television in general.
0: Hmm. That sounds amazing. How do we not all know about that? I want to read that article right away. <laughs> um, Trying to make a magazine about America and Europe without talking too much about Trump is like us trying to make a podcast about Europe without talking about Brexit. Um, so I, I empathise with that challenge, but I think it's a noble one. <laughs> What's your mission as Are We Europe? Do you have a mission or do you just want to tell as many stories as possible?
2: No, we definitely have a mission. I think that as inhabitants of Europe, we're faced with the European Union as a monetary and a political system. Uh, and we have a lot of news about EU. And although we live in this borderless continent, I feel like we we hardly ever actually feel united, or maybe we do, but our central aim is to approach this question of European identity, and we do that through a personal perspective and and we we enjoy different forms of storytelling. uh, And and as such, we we bring those different perspectives together and we say, hey, what does it mean to be European or does that mean anything? Uh, What happens when you create this... Place without borders, so to speak, and people start traveling and exchanging cultures uh, and that 's basically the central aim of, of what we 're trying to investigate and then of course, I mean we like very, very nice visual stories, we like exciting stories, so it 's also about the format uh, we believe in in well designed websites <laughs> and visually appealing illustrations and I think the combination of those two things makes us unique.
1: One of the things I like about our Europe is even though it's a quite young team you guys seem to believe in the power of print still. Um, why was it important for you guys to produce this as a print magazine as well as a website?
2: No that's a great question and I'm glad you asked it. I, I personally am a huge fan of print magazines and I am one of these people who will go to different cities and go to little bookstores and, and look for niche publications. And I think that there is a sort of revival going on. And some people call it uh, a hipster, hipster thing to do. I mean, call it what you want to call it. But I think there is such an added value to having a physical object in your hands, because the problem with online is that we're so used to being bombarded by information that we stop thinking about the humans that are crafting the product and especially in journalism where people aren't even willing to pay for journalism these days anymore and i mean i'm just as bad i don't i basically don't have any subscriptions to any journalistic outlets and i think when you have a print magazine it just reminds you of the fact that that there's a physical product that's being made by people who have different skill sets there's editors there's designers there's writers there's photographers and when they join forces you can get this beautifully printed product that you can put in your bookshelf. Uh, and another thing to answer your question, Katie, is, is that why we wanna do print is because we we hope to tell timeless stories about Europe that aren't necessarily tied to the 24-hour news cycle. It's a kind of slow journalism is what we're doing. And in that sense, if you get one of our print magazines, hopefully it'll still be relevant two years from now, which makes it a worthy worthy investment. <laughs>
1: If you're interested in getting your grubby mitts on one of the beautiful print copies of Are We Europe's new magazine, you can order one at areweeurope.com. And uh, if you're one of those people that's just convinced that print is dead, you can also just read it right there on the website for free. But if you buy one for the princely sum of €9.99, you're helping to fund this really great project. And also, you can just look really cool by leaving it lying around casually on your coffee table. Do it. You know you want to. Let's go to Spain, where there's been quite a weird scandal brewing in recent weeks uh, around university degrees and specifically politicians either getting caught having plagiarised or getting degrees that maybe they didn't deserve because they just did, like, a four-day course or something.
0: I must say, like, I'm actually quite pleased that for once this is a political scandal that's not about sexual harassment or racist tweets or an uncomfortable connection to Russia, naming no names. Um, Yeah, it feels really quite old school that this is, like, an academic thing thing about honour and plagiarism
1: yeah it's quite a juicy one this scandal has already claimed to the job of the health minister and the prime minister and leader of the opposition are now also facing accusations that there's something dodgy going on with their academic records as well what is going on We do not know. Luckily, we do know someone who does. Our friend Mikey Stossard, Michael, I should say, is the Madrid correspondent for the Financial Times newspaper. He is on his way back from a mission in deepest, darkest rural Spain. So full disclosure, he had really bad signal. I had really bad signal. We have conducted this interview through the unusual medium of WhatsApp voice memos, but uh, at least we got to talk to him. And it's really interesting to hear what he has to say. So here is Mikey, live from the roadside. (laughs)
0: Could we go straight to it and could you give us like a quick rundown of exactly what's been happening in Spain and who's been accused of what?
3: When you really look at it, it's two separate things. And I'll talk about the first one, which is probably the most serious, which is um, allegations of corruption involving this university called King Juan Carlos in Madrid. And essentially it started before the summer when the uh, president of the Madrid region, a very powerful politician called Cristina Cifuentes, when it came out that her degree from this university had been given and she hadn't actually done any of the work. She hadn't done a thesis and she hadn't turned up to class. Scandal, drama, cover up. She soon resigns, or not that soon, but eventually she resigns. A few weeks later, the plot thickens and another senior politician from the centre-right, who's now the head of the centre-right party, Pablo Casado, allegations emerged that he also has the same degree and he also didn't sit the final exams or do any work. This then prompted a legal investigation into to what extent this was breaking the law, to what extent you could consider this a gift to a public official. And bear in mind, this is a university that relies on public funding. So it's all reasonably serious. Um, This then touched on the socialist government as well two weeks ago when the health minister resigned after it came out that there were irregularities with her own degree at Juan Carlos University. So really a lot of people being taken down and swept up in a mess with this university and there's sniffs and investigations and smells of something to do with corruption. A separate, although related, scandal about plagiarism and academic standards, the health minister resigned partly because of the supposed irregularities in her degree, but also because it came out that she had plagiarized sections of her final thesis. This was then jumped on as an opportunity by the opposition to bring out long held rumors about the academic quality of the Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez's final doctoral thesis there have long been rumours that there was something not quite right about it. Um, They essentially drummed up noise about the thesis. Two right-wing papers flat out accused Sanchez of plagiarism. And it's been a stormy few weeks in Spain with the government trying to fend off these allegations, which I think it's just about managed to do but with some difficulty and some cost.
0: Does all this drama suggest that there is like, perhaps a wider problem with the Spanish university system?
3: I don't think this case tells us that corruption is somehow endemic in the Spanish education system. It's true that Spanish education is criticised for not being very good. Spain has two world-class private business schools, yet the state universities have, there are none in the top 100 in the world. I think the wider point isn't so much about Spanish education. What I think is interesting is how Spain has gone from quite a corrupt country maybe 20 years ago um, and before the crisis the relationships between business and local government were very tight. There are many many corruption cases and I think that in the last 10 years in particular, that's changed. And Spain is not a corrupt country. The tolerance for any corruption amongst the electorate is now extremely low. But I feel like Spain has moved a very long way in not that long. And what's interesting is when, as a country, as a society, you move from one set of norms to another, there are various small institutions that kind of have got left behind. You know, not everything moves at the same time.
1: Okay, so maybe there's a silver lining in there somewhere in the fact that this whole row is more the exception than the rule these days. That's good, at least. Uh, It doesn't seem like good news for the prime minister, though, being kind of tarred with this brush of allegations that his academic record is dodgy in some way. It feels like not that long ago that he was taking office and was doing pretty well, internationally at least. He was seen as this young, dynamic, socialist leader, nicknamed Mr. Handsome, of course, as we're fond of recalling on this podcast. But um, even when he came into office, we were talking on the show about the fact that he'd become prime minister in this weird situation where the previous prime minister got booted out in a vote of confidence, which meant that Sanchez is now prime minister, but he's only got like a quarter of the seats in parliament. And now all these accusations that his degree might be dodgy, it feels pretty bad. Could this potentially be something that triggers elections? I
3: think it's unlikely to be this that topples the Sanchez government. Uh, His rivals in parliament, particularly the Daniels, the Liberal Party, are trying to hammer him over the head with this as much as possible. But I think the real analysis of his thesis doesn't really prove, certainly not hook, line and sinker, that there was plagiarism. You can make a case that some of the academic standards weren't super brilliant, that maybe he put things in footnotes, that he should have put in direct quotations, this kind of stuff. But whether the electorate really care and whether that's enough to trigger new elections, no I would suspect not but having said that it's another headache and another distraction for a government which has only 84 seats in the 350 seat Spanish Parliament and is facing a real battle to get its budget passed in the next couple of months if they fail at the budget that could well lead to other elections. So anything that makes that harder um, is certainly not a good thing for the government.
0: This Spanish plagiarism debacle has like really reminded me of a this American Life episode that came out a few weeks ago called How I Got Into College. Did you listen
1: to it? I did, I really liked it. I really liked the bit at the beginning with the mums pretending to be their kids trying to get into university and saying like, oh yeah, I'm so excited about coming to this college and like literally trying to pretend to be their kids and saying the word awesome over and over again because that's what parents think that kids say.
0: It's so nice, wasn't it? I also love the touching anecdote from a man who remembers being punished when he was a seven-year-old child and almost expelled from school for plagiarizing something in class. He remembered not understanding the concept of plagiarism and why it was bad and uh, being really confused that his punishment was to write lines on the chalkboard, something along the lines of, i must not plagiarize when those lines he was copying from someone else because someone had told him to write it i like it and i thought that maybe the spanish politicians should have a listen to it also to like think about why it is they didn't understand what plagiarism was
1: just to really get it into their skulls what exactly cheating is i think that would be helpful
0: We really need the happy ending this week because we've had a lot of technical difficulties. The happy ending is, for the second week in a row, a result of something done by France's mug-adorned President Emmanuel Macron. But once again, Macca doesn't come across particularly well in this story, despite the Happy ending that follows. So don't worry, we're not just like loving on Emmanuel. This story, like last week, starts with an event that is filmed and then goes viral in France. This time it was a spontaneous conversation between President Macron and Jonathan Jahan, a 25-year-old gardener who has been struggling to find a job. He plucked up the courage to tell Macron about his difficulty finding a job, saying that he'd written to everyone and was having no success. He received a response from Macron that didn't show him at his finest or most empathetic. He said to Jonathan that he would easily find work as a waiter or in a hotel, and that Macron himself could just cross the street and find him a job immediately. This understandably didn't sit well with people and came across as rather arrogant from the former investment banker president, who I imagine hasn't had trouble finding a job in recent living memory and probably won't ever again. That is despite the fact that unemployment in France is still above 9% and in the gardening sector, according to the BBC, 5,000 jobs have gone in the past seven years. So it's understandable that later Jahan said publicly that he found Macron's comments hard to swallow and he accused Macron of being out of touch. However, Things may be looking up for Jonathan Johan as the French Gardening Federation have said that after all this media attention, they have had a stream of job offers directed to them and have asked Jonathan to get in touch ASAP. So it may only be a matter of time before Jonathan is being paid for gardening again soon. Cross those green fingers, everyone.
1: I've got all of mine crossed. I think that's a really nice ending to a story that was otherwise just like another story about Macron putting his foot in his mouth. Yay! super happy for Jonathan that's great news there was a really nice quote from the gardening federation saying like we've become a job centre I just thought it was lovely
0: well that's it for this week and to be perfectly honest with you we're kind of pleased aren't we Katie
1: Don't say that. We are never glad when a week's recording comes to an end. This week was a little testing, but by the time that people hear it, it will have been edited into something that sounds like we had absolutely no technical problems and everything was fine.
0: Well, we should release Katie from the little ball she's scrunched up in and the staircase in her Roman hallway. And yeah, I'm going to go and have a cup of tea.
1: I'm going to go out on the town and do some heavy drinking. Last time I was in Rome, I was 18 and dancing on a table to Gasolina. And after the recording that this has been, I kind of feel like I need to do the same thing again.
0: Go do that. Enjoy yourself. Some of us will be well behaved and stay at home looking over my very difficult music that I need to try and get into my brain.
1: <laughs> Such a wild child.
0: Whilst I'm not doing that, who knows? I might be posting on Twitter on behalf of us at EuropeansPod or on Instagram, Europeans Podcast or maybe reading some of your lovely emails that we get, europeanspodcast.gmail.com If not, then I guess you'll just hear from me next week. <laughs>
1: That's such a sad way to end things. Get in touch, everyone. We do love hearing from you. We seem to have had quite a big boost in listeners this week. So maybe my plea last week for people to tell their friends about the show actually went heated and people went and told their friends. So thank you very much, listeners. It's nice to know that the the podcast is getting out there and spreading. Go and do the same again this week. Why not? Tell someone else. Tell your other friend. It's working. Have a great week, everyone. I hope that your Wi-Fi is better than mine. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Au revoir. Listeners, I am back home in beautiful Paris after what actually turned out to be a really lovely trip to Rome, aside from the fact that the crappy Wi-Fi made it incredibly difficult to record the show. As our listener Sergio de Ferra put it, Non funziona niente mai bella. Nothing works, but it's beautiful. Never a truer word was said. Anyway, we usually edit out the little Skype delays that arise from time to time when recording a show between two different cities in Europe and sometimes more than two. But uh, just to give you an idea of what it was actually like recording this week, we're going to play you out with a little snippet of what this conversation actually sounded like according to Maria Chatzaki who is a Greek biologist who studies these spiders, she said it was really ideal conditions for them at the moment because there's been a combination of really warm weather and loads and loads of mosquitoes for them to eat
0: I didn't hear any of that final bit but it sounded to me like you were singing a song about <laughs> spiders and I really hope that's what happened
1: this is like the least fun I've had in ages Wincy, Wincy it